This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and my guest today is a theater director, puppeteer, African-American theater historian, and archivist. He has a Master's of Fine Arts in Directing from Northwestern University and participated in the Lincoln Center Theater Directors Laboratory. Joining me now from Chicago is director and puppet short films creator, Jarrell Henderson. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Thank you. It's good to be here, Pat. Thank you so much. I'm excited to have you. A previous guest, Cheryl Coons, who's a dramatist and a lyricist, recommended you. And we always consider referrals from previous guests to be of high regard. And you've got several intriguing things that you do different than anyone else. And I, I guess first want to dive right into the way that you do puppeteering and also incorporate that into making short films. I saw a really beautiful piece that you had that was made out of cardboard uh, construction called yeah. Diamond's Dream. It's a really amazing short film. It, it's got a great soundscape in it. Tell us a little bit about how you came together on that project. That project came out of the pandemic and the shutdown. I'm a theater director first and foremost. That's how I lead myself through the world. But of course, during the shutdown, COVID shut down a few years ago, no live theater was being made. It, it wasn't safe. And so the question became, well, how are you going to use your art and your training now? And instead of going into the streaming plays, they're sometimes referred to as Zoom plays, but instead of kind of leaning in that direction of kind of live performers kind of in, in streaming boxes or windows, I've loved puppetry all of my life. I began to see myself as a possible puppeteer in graduate school at Northwestern. We had to take a toy theater class, and that was the first time I really got my hands dirty with really building puppets and, and puppet stories. During the shutdown, rather, it was kind of like, well, you said you would always have time. You said you would work on puppetry if you had the time, and now you have lots of time. So I began to work every day just creating something. I, I wasn't trying to build a story or coherent anything. I was just trying to build and get used to working with tools. And I would post a little bit every day. I was telling a few new friends of mine the other week, sometimes nothing comes to you. And usually I would post something around 10 a.m., no matter what it was. And one day it got to about 3 p.m. and I just posted a blank screen <laughs> because nothing came that day. That's how it was. Jackie Russell at Chicago Children's Theater saw me doing this and experimenting with this and reached out to me. None of the theaters could be put on traditional work. And so what if we created a pandemic shutdown grant for artists who need work to make material for theaters who need content? And so I, you know, connected with my friend, Caitlin. She's the one who created. So I wrote the story to Diamond's Dream. 
and I directed the film, but my friend Caitlin Desoy is the one who built that world. Um, and we went to Northwestern together. She was a costume designer when I was a director and she's costume designed a lot of my shows. So the two of us put our heads together. We started reading a lot of TYA literature, old literature. And the story we settled on was At the Back of the North Wind by George MacDonald, which became, for me, became Diamond's Dream. It's not an interpretation of the story at all. I literally took some of the fairy elements from that and begin to play around with how that might live in the 21st century. Um, it wasn't an adaptation. The one thing I did take directly from At the Back of the North Wind is the name Diamond. The young man who has the adventures with the North Wind in that story, his name is Diamond. And so I wanted to make that connection. And so I was able to gather together a few designers on Lynn in New York who built the world, built the set. And then Dan Eisen, who was leaving Philadelphia, I believe is in New York now, uh, who did that incredible soundscape. And Jeff Pascal, who was another friend of mine, young African-American puppeteer and filmmaker. And he was my DP. And Jeff and I, with the help of some of the folks at CCT, shot that in two weeks and was able to get it up by Dr. King's birthday in 2021. Yeah, it changed how I saw everything. I, I've never thought of myself as a puppeteer, and now it's like, well, no, you, yeah, I am, and I want to do more. Well, so that's interesting. The, the medium, you did use puppeteering, but you were still a storyteller making a film. Yeah. So now you just weren't using a real actor or real settings. You were fabricating really everything from cardboard, essentially, in that situation. You're still, in a way, animating a storybook, I guess, in a way. You're, you're outlining or storyboarding a story that you have to tell. Yeah. And it, that's available. They can see that online at your website, I believe. Uh, is it elsewhere? Is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube. It's, there's a link to it on my website, and I believe there's a link to it on Chicago Children's Theater's website. There's a lot of cool things of yours that I had not been aware of. And another one, which was an amazing puppet film short, was your film, I Am the Bear. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and Thank it's heartbreaking you. for many reasons. And why don't you tell the listener a little bit about the premise of I Am the Bear? Okay. This was like a five to seven year story in the making. So a number of years ago, let's say six or seven years ago, I was walking to work. I was working in Wilmette, which is in a suburb of Chicago. Uh, working, going to my day job, and I was stopped and questioned by the police. And this happens more than I would care for it to happen. It actually, it's it's not that unusual. But this time, the phrase that the police officer used to stop me was, you fit the description. After I got through, like, just survive this interaction, <laughs> just survive this interaction and get through it with with the officer, the fact that she could have killed me and it would have been justified and her only reasoning for stopping me would have been he fit a description and that's very general it's extraordinarily general but it's enough for her to stop me and possibly kill me and that's what i i a lot of police officers i think either don't realize or don't care when they're dealing with people of color black and brown people african-americans bipoc there are any number of ways to put it now, a days, which is a good thing. It wouldn't leave me alone. And so it started as a shadow puppetry piece. And then I tried it as kind of a tabletop puppetry piece and that didn't work. 
working with Blair Thomas at Chicago uh, International Puppet Theater Festival is when it became me with like an actual puppet bear, a hand puppet that I can manipulate while I tell the story. And it was really the best kind of like self-driven artistic therapy um, because now people, you know, people will see the video or those folks who saw me perform it live here in Chicago. And they'll be like, oh, would you want to come perform that here? And it's like, maybe, but if I'm being honest, I kind of want to move on to create other things. I created I Am The Bear because I needed to get this anger and frustration. I wanted to strike back at something. I, I felt so angry and so hopeless and so sad. And I Am The Bear was a way to exercise that. It's just a couple of minutes. I think it's seven or eight minutes long of me talking about this interaction that I had. And the bear becomes a metaphor for how I believe people see me. It's a great metaphor for lots of reasons. But I mean, the fact that black and brown bears, you know, you don't have to say it. For some yeah. reason, a bear's potential to be interesting to look at or dangerous or what, you know, there's so much going on there, but it's very accessible. Because yeah. from a cute teddy bear to a ferocious grizzly, it can certainly be misinterpreted. But I just thought your interaction and the natural behavior of the bear and certainly a very lovely intertwining when you hug the bear at the end. And yeah. It's very, very moving. Certainly from the outside, again, this is as a Caucasian guy, I know that I don't face that same concern on the street or when yeah. the car gets pulled over. I know that there is a, a great inequity in just the daily lifestyle of what somebody has to do, right? Yeah, yeah. Your voice and amplifying that story is amazing. And certainly making it a film form makes it available for anybody on YouTube. And I guess I would say to you that any of those invitations to perform it live, while a, a repurposing of it for you, is also the fact that now people are asking you to tell the story as opposed to don't tell the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. The bear is your entree to the invitation uh, because you've made it such a wonderful performance piece that, and, and it does, they feel it. There's no doubt yeah. they feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just showed up at a party and retold this story over and over, people would just say, hey, get over it, right? And that is like the worst thing that we have going on in our world right now. What you're describing for me is actually what makes puppetry so amazing. In order to have the conversations that we as Americans really need to have, in order to really move forward. It's a lot of negotiation of built-in prejudices, biases, that in some cases we may not be aware of, in some cases we may know that they're there, but might not be ready to admit them out loud. And so puppetry allows another way to enter into that conversation for someone like myself, who is constantly dealing with and sometimes being invited to share these stories, Puppetry allows a way to talk about it, and but moving it a little, making it a little less personal to me. These are not easy stories to tell. Mm. At least I am the bear. It was a very, very, very hard story to tell. I had a back and forth with with Blair, who directed it, about whether or not I would be the performer in it. Because originally I was like, "We'll hire a performer and they'll play me." Uh. And Blair was like, no, no, I think it's got to be you. You tell the story so no one can tell the story like you can tell it. But that's the thing. These are not easy. And so the fact that I am negotiating it with a puppet character that can become a part of me, 
that lives outside of myself, but I can also hug. You know, the anger that I was talking about and the frustration that I feel when I'm dealing with police, I've never been in a gang, I've never sold drugs. I grew up in the inner city in the 1980s, going to the 1990s during the era of crack and drive-by shootings. And I was raised by two parents who worked, who got up and went to work and came home and paid their taxes and took care of their kids. And so the idea that when people see me and they just see trouble coming, it becomes an easier way for me to navigate these things. If it's helpful to share these experiences, I'm open to sharing them. But I also want to be aware of the emotional and psychological cost on myself. Right. One of the greatest, I think it's a blackish, a point that the TV show Blackish makes when they're talking about the things that civil rights icons, and I'm not calling myself a civil rights icon, I'm just using this as an example. <laughs> but, you know, Jackie Robinson, for all of the amazing things he did in life, he died at 51. Mm. You know, that's incredibly young. Yeah. I don't want to change the world and then die that young because of the stress. Right. Yeah, exactly. So puppetry makes it a little bit easier for me to negotiate it. I love, oh my God, puppet. oh, it's, it's a life changer. Pat. Right. It's, it's been a life changer. It makes me think of a story. I, I, I want to share this film with you, which I'm sure I can access, but it's called White Face. And oh, my, yeah. my friend, Brian McDonald, an African-American great storyteller and director, created this short a long time ago. And Whiteface refers to the fact that these are clown Americans who come from Europe. And his analogy in the story is that European clowns are uh, elevated and when they come to America, they're suddenly looked at differently. And mm. he uses the metaphor when, you know, somebody's at the garage and the mechanic who's in white face, they say, that clown's not going to work on my car, is he? And a surgeon that's white face that nobody wants me to operate on them because they're putting me down. And all of it, of course, is a an analogy for race. But mm -hmm. but the funny thing is that even within that, the clowns look down on mimes and people are looking at all of this. And it allows him to have a really thorough conversation because he's choosing a new metaphor, almost like a Rod Serling episode of Twilight oh, Zone, yeah, right? Yeah. With aliens, which is people can take the sugar pill the medicine goes down a little bit better when it's not so a finger in the eye. Yeah, it's, I was raised by very direct people. Yeah. <laughs> so the way that I communicate is very direct, but also understanding that not everyone responds to that in the same way. You know, I said that I directed Ragtime a few weeks ago at Metropolis Performing Arts Center, which is in Arlington Heights, another suburb of Chicago. Every once in a while, uh, I pop up into those Chicago suburbs. Someone was talking about, you know, some of the more joyful moments in the play, in the musical, rather, as opposed to some of the really tragic, really heavy-hitting moments of that play. Yeah. And, you know, how we were able to balance that. And my response was, it takes a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Humor, understanding the absurd, understanding satire. I'm a huge fan. Like, I grew up, I grew up watching some of the great satires of the middle to the late 20th century. We're talking Billy Wilder films. Sure. We're talking Mel Brooks films. We're talking the Wayans Brothers films in the late 1990s. So satire, absurdity, pushing the envelope beyond. And, and also, you know, Jim Henson's influence because The Muppet Show was absurd. Yeah. It was absurd. That's one of the reasons why it was so funny. It was also adult. It was very adult. Yeah. Oof, yes. Yeah. Families watched it and it impacted kids, but I'll tell you what, it impacted a lot of adults because it was, when I saw it, it was in prime time. 
And that was a breakthrough in a way. Oh my gosh. But people didn't realize that something, because puppets are so often attributed to theater for young audiences or children's theater or children's films. And, and that is one very real way to use it. It is by no means the only way. And so as an adult who's interested in exploring adult themes, I know I like thrillers as well. The question for me is, so how do I use puppetry in my language? How do I begin to use it? It has to begin with who I am as an African-American, cis male, queer, you know, person living at the beginning of the 21st century. I'm an old millennial. So what does that mean? That means I do know what it's like to get on my bike at 10 o'clock in the morning and my mom says, be back when it's dark <laughs> and you're out all day. You would just go out into the world. But I also, when I was getting into high school, was when the internet became like a major artery in how we spoke to each other and how you understood the world and the ability, you know, when I, I feel like I was the last generation where my parents bought encyclopedias. You know, there was right. an encyclopedia guy right. who sold us. You know, and by high school, I was able to find basically any information I needed just from the internet. You know, now you have to question it because you didn't know who was giving well, it. Yeah, and even now more than ever because the crowdsourcing and the alternative facts and whatever, it's just you can find the answer, any answer you want to find right or wrong. Well, that's the hard part. You know, when I'm teaching, I have to be really patient with my students because I was like, they're like, oh, I don't know that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You can Google that in two seconds. When I was a young man, I had to go to the library to find an answer. The damn Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> like, you... With all the advents in AI, the idea that you say, make me a speech on this subject or write me uh, some copy for this thing. Because it accesses all the information available to it, it's also taking those biases That's from right. all those sources. So yeah. only now a machine is taking the false and the true and the mixing and making something new for an orator to put out in the world. And I really find that to be a complication in that advancement because people are going to get lazier and machines are going to get more voracious about crowdsourcing information that anybody can shove into the internet. I look forward to creating a theatrical piece that features puppets that deals with that. I really, really do. I really do. It is exciting and it is terrifying. And for me, those are the kind of the two words that really drive <laughs> the time period that we're in. Whenever you're living in a time where the rules of the last 100 years are breaking down around you, that's exciting because it means that more things become possible in terms of how to shape the future. But it's also terrifying because the rules of society are breaking down around you. Well, we have tools to rebuild. You know, it's like the conversation we're having now. It's one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you. This is one of the ways that we as Americans, as humans, as people who are interested in care and heart, who are curious, not just intellectually, but curious about the world around us. It's one of the ways that we begin to build vocabulary and figure out how we're going to build together. You and I are building together right now. I appreciate that. Listen, I have a lot to learn. And in general, I'm curious and I'm empathetic and I'm heart driven, right? I'm humanity driven. Yeah. I think you kind of hinted at it earlier, which I think is really important for the likes of the listener here, is that these biases, they range and they can be very, very complicated because sometimes 
they're almost invisible to us in terms of our unawareness of what our grandparents did or the people before that, that we may still have so, some ownership over mm-hmm. versus the thing that we might be wearing on our sleeve that would be happening inappropriately right in front and intentional, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that is a long piano of tunes that we can play. Yeah. What's hard is that we're stubborn. Human beings yep. are stubborn. And so they change the language to it's a tradition. They look at it as something, well, our family has always done it that way, or our country has always done it that way, or mm-hmm. our legal system has always done it. Well, that doesn't mean it was appropriate or right or the best idea. Change is really difficult for people and all people. One of the really fascinating, and I mean that genuinely fascinating, it is something that I think about in, with wonder. It's the way that when you look at what the so-called founding fathers, now I think that that is a problematic term that needs to be revisited. <laughs> Understandably, yeah, right. But for the sake of you know this conversation and understanding what we're talking about, the so-called founding fathers, when they were creating what became known as the United States of America, in my mind, it was similar to when the, the periodic table was first being created in that they set down what they knew to be true at the time, but they left space open. Wow. The periodic chart always has empty boxes at the bottom because there is an understanding that there are some elements that have not been discovered yet. So there's still places to grow. There's still an unknown to explore. The so-called founding fathers really did leave us with a sense of that when they were creating laws. That's why we have amendments to laws. Mm -hmm. And so at least in our country, the United States of America, it it really is a battle between those who want to hold on, at least one of the battles is between those who just want to hold on to what was and those who understand that the system of laws that we have was always meant to evolve. Anything that's not growing is dead. They were failing forward, trying out new things and, you know, being horrible human beings. I used to have people that would derail conversations on the sins of the founding fathers by making moral arguments about, well, I don't think they were sociopaths. I don't know. What do you call someone who owns their children as a as an enslaved human being and then sells that person or, refu- or keeps them in servitude for the duration of their life, freeing them upon their death? I mean, I don't want to throw labels around. It was what the F it was. Having said that, when you look at the system that was created, it was created with a knowledge of known and perfection. But this is what we're going to get now. And the point is for the rest of us, as time evolves, to build it so that it is more equitable. That's when I feel like we really begin to run into trouble. So for me as an artist, the question then becomes, so what can I do to help push forward the version of America and the version of the world that I feel like connects best with what I want to see in America based off of what we had in the past? That means having more conversation. Well, I'm sick of conversation because I've been part of conversations about, you know, topics like this for all of my life. I mean, people look at me and say, oh, Drill, you know, you're so great at these conversations. It's like I've been having them since I was seven. The first time I was stopped by a police officer and they thought that my brother and I were stealing something, I was eight. I was eight years old. The first time I was stopped by a police officer. You know what we were doing? We were taking dresses from our mother's house to our aunt's house because our aunt wanted to borrow a dress for church. And the police stopped us because they thought that we were stealing clothes. They just saw two black kids. So (laughs) all of that goes into the history, right? So what can I do? 
as one human being who like you know someone like you i wear my emotions on my sleeves i understand that it is important the vulnerability in the conversation and i don't i feel unfair that you have to have this conversation so frequently i think to me complicates matters because theater certain things in the world music there are certain things where empathy and heart and uh, that kind of drive to find storytelling as a healing tool are beneficial. And there are other places when you get into laws and politics, it's so clouded with the argument of semantics. They're so busy trying to define what the words mean that the argument is no longer about the actual thing. Like it's just a dust cloud of talk. And that is really frustrating because you would think that as we evolve, as humanity comes further, that sense of the golden rule of treating others like you'd like to be treated and that that search yeah. for equality and those the nature of let's let's do this for all humans, whichever part of the world they live in, you would think that would be evolving and incrementally getting better. I don't know that it is. I think that it's changing and there is progress in some areas and setbacks in others. But I just think it's the slowest melting iceberg out there. You would just think it would be accelerating towards success, but it's not. That's where creativity and art really come in handy. Because at least for me, puppetry and specifically shadow puppetry and poetic language, language is imperfect in general. <laughs> and I know that for me, there are many things that I feel that I do not really know how to put into words. But that's why shadow puppetry for me and puppetry in general is really helpful because it gets me out of trying to find a verbal language for this and I can create a visual language. And sometimes the visual language is closer. The moment in I am the bear, when I hug the bear, that's the point. Yep. Everything else that you heard, the trauma, the fear, the frustration, the anger, that is all prelude to the fact that my safety as a human being while speaking to someone whose job is supposed to be to protect me. We're not talking about a personal choice when we're talking about the police. We're talking about people who signed up for a job, J-O-B, they get paid, they have benefits. It does not mean that we get to dismiss the danger of their job, but it does mean that that job is a choice. And when you take on that choice, you're supposed to be taking on more than who you are. You're supposed to be leaning into the idea of what America is to protect and serve. Now, maybe in that police officer's instance, that's what she was doing. I can't argue that. But I know that stopping a human being and saying that you fit a general description, for me, isn't the closest way to get to protect and serve. And it leads to all those other emotions. So what's the point? Again, what's the point? The point is the hug at the end. No, I see that. What does it mean when you're not seen as a human being by those who have the power to kill you? What I really needed after that was a hug. And it reminds everyone, it, it allows access for empathy. It reminds access for humanity. And that's one of the things that I can do, even as we're surrounded by all of these conversations. And in a way, that single gesture cuts through a lot of conversation. The verbal language can actually be an obstacle. You found other ways I noticed in some of the materials I was looking at to use puppetry and music and emotion and dance 
in your pop-up puppetry event, which was called Black Butterfly. Beautiful tribute to John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. Looked to me to be a happening. And maybe you yes. can describe it better because I didn't see it in motion. I just looked through some photos and the notion that these butterflies are flying with music and dance going on feels like the visual celebration and a combination of that with the fact that it was a space for mourning at the same time. Did you collaborate with others initially or was that your idea? How did that come about? It was my idea. I was working with a team of artists. Again, this was all during the pandemic leaning into the shutdown. So the Art of Spontaneous Spectacle is the name of the organization that I was working with that summer. And mostly Northwestern puppet nerds. You know, um, my former professor, Jessica Thebus, who's an amazing director and one who loves to adapt stories, taught by the late, great, recently late, great Frank Galati at Northwestern. There's a reason why Northwestern was the right place for me. Some of the folks there, you know, the looking glass folks are all about pulling apart narratives and then restructuring it in theatrical language. And that's what Jessica does. And she's one of the reasons why I now call myself a puppeteer. You know, there wasn't really a leader, but if anyone was, I would say it was her. Um, and the rest of us would kind of bring ideas to the table and she would kind of say, okay, well, we're going to work on this, this one. But Black Butterfly was my response. So we were in a period of deep mourning right? Because there was a lot of death with the shutdown of the pandemic. There was a lot of death. A lot of people were dying by the score because of COVID. And John Lewis and C.T. Vivian passed on, I think it was the same day or within hours of each other. And so I wanted to do something to honor John Lewis specifically. I valued C.T. Vivian as well, but John Lewis had more of a direct impact on me just because I knew more about him than I did about C.T. Vivian. And even though I always I always respected John Lewis, but I would I would have arguments with him whenever he was speaking on television, because I really I just I have and had a very hard time connecting with a lot of the African American leaders who came out of the American Civil Rights era, who were like, "This is what we do because it's what we do," and who else is going to do it? And I wrestle with that idea a lot. Anyway, when John Lewis actually passed away, I realized that I could have taken more advantage of get, actually getting to know him while he was alive. He was fairly accessible for like a congressman, an elderly black congressman. So I wanted to do a tribute to him and then C.T. Vivian. And so really what Black Butterfly was, was my response to um, funerals. And the funerals that I had gone to growing up in an all black neighborhood I never really liked them. Now, that's a weird thing to say. No one likes funerals. It was more that I didn't understand why they were done the way that they were done. I didn't understand why they were structured the way that they were structured. I understand why they're necessary now as an adult. You also haven't been to New Orleans uh, where they marched down the street. That's, that's some amazing celebration, I'll tell you what. Yes, that's not the kind of funeral I was raised with. Yes. Thank you for putting that in there. I acknowledge that that is a real No, I mean, thing. I've seen some amazing jazz funerals when I lived down that area, and I was like, party time, people. Let's go. Let's jump in line. That is not how we did it in, in Philly. If I were to create a moment of mourning, right, it would be closer to just having a group event where a bunch of people can gather, where we can all say Black Butterfly, okay, 
I'm going to talk about a little bit about why I thought this was necessary for everyone who came to listen and to thank people for coming because we're at a time of great death. We're at a time of where it's, it's dangerous to be around each other. So a moment of just thanks. Oh, it was also important. We did it at Austin Town Hall, which is on the west side of Chicago. And that was important to me because most of the art that takes place in Chicago happens on the north side. Now I'm speaking as a theater director. The theaters that you know and have heard of are on the north side. You have Steppenwolf, you have The Goodman, you have Looking Glass. Uh, the only theater that you hear about in terms of commercial theater that's on this that comes close to being on the south side, well, it is on the south side, is uh, the Court Theater, which is on the University of Chicago campus, and that's around 55th and Cottage Grove. But most of the theater and art takes place on the north side, right? That's where you can go and that's where you can win awards. That's where the money is. That's where the Chicago Sun-Times and Tribune are going to show up and give you a review, right? But what about the south and the west side? The sides that are predominantly black and brown. And those are the spaces that are closer to how I grew up. I didn't grow up again. I say this a lot because you have to understand when you look at the kind of art that I make that I grew up in an in area where it was 99% African-American and 1% Asian. And when I say Asian, I mean Cambodian. We were all black and brown people. And those were the spaces that you didn't get a lot of art. You didn't get a lot of people coming in to do things. You didn't get a lot of that. So if I wanted art as a child, I usually had to leave my neighborhood and go into Center City, Philadelphia, or go to a community center where art was being made. Right. And they, it wasn't always easy to get to those places either, right? Exactly. When we talk about access, man, let me tell you. So it was important to me to go into these spaces to try to create something with those spaces. So it wasn't just me and the artist spontaneous spectacle showing up and you know with a big bucket of art and throwing it against the wall and saying, congratulations, you've seen our art. It was having conversations with the local community centers, the, the library and the, the uh, hall where it was taking place to let them know, hey, we were thinking about being here. Is there a certain day that works well? Is there certain ways that we can navigate ourselves in this space that'll be helpful to you or helpful to the community because we're not connected with this community, but there's something that we want to share? Is there someone from this community who you think might want to be there on the day to be a part of it? You know what I mean? Really working to have a conversation with folks who don't usually get a chance to work with artists like myself because we're on the north side trying to work at Steppenwolf. I'm not knocking that. I'm also trying to work at Steppenwolf. Listen, however, it's not the only thing I want to do. It begins with that thing of, of really trying to build accessible community between the different sections of Chicago. On top of that, I'm going to talk a little bit and then the puppets are going to move and the butterflies become a way of honoring the spirits of those who have flown away. Not just the names that we know, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, but the thousands of other spirits that were leaving us at that time. It becomes a place for collective mourning. Move Me Soul, which is a dance company that is based on the west side of Chicago. I reached out to them. Are you okay with being a part of this? Would you want to be a part of this? So I would do movement with puppetry. Then Move Me Soul would do some kind of expressive dance. And then I would work with puppets and the Move Me Soul. And then we did a piece together where they were dancing and I was operating the puppets around them. We're now in conversation. Who is it for? It's for whoever walks by at that moment. We had people with shopping carts walking by like, what is that? 
some a woman who who just ordered an Uber. She was getting into her Uber. It was so fascinated by what we're doing, and she shouted out, "I would stop and watch if I could." But I just was getting into an Uber. I have to go because you know when I would see people walk by, I would invite them over. How often do you get to see a little bit of magic? honoring you and who you are in the era that we're living in just happening around you. It was absolutely a happening, Pat. And that's where it came from because that's the kind of funeral that I would want to be a part of. It gets me out of the Judeo-Christian literature and language. It gets me out of focusing so much on the loss of one body or one spirit that you forget that death is actually a part of the conversation of life. And part of understanding life is understanding how to navigate that. And honoring death doesn't have to be the same way. It can be something a little bit different. So that's where Black Butterfly came out of. For many people, what they forget is that the seasons, when you live in a part of the country or something where you go through a winter and then you see a spring, death's somewhat of an inevitable phase in society right but when you like live in southern california and it's summer all year <laughs> long you're like people don't age well because they don't like to age they feel like they're flirting with death in a different way but i i do think that when a person dies a library is burned to the ground it's something like that yeah i've heard that and it's an amazing thought because the notion is as you said with john lewis is that all the stories and what the person knows, what they did in their lifetime, essentially, we no longer have access to that library. Not directly. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a legacy. I, I'm saying that, but I'm saying the same goes for a non-famous oh, grandparent for yes. anybody, right? That that resource is, is closed. That's right. And the nuances of what they did and how they did it and who they interfaced with is, unless you do what people are doing now in many ways, if you're able to sit down and and have that interview on camera with your grandparents mm -hmm. or do something mm -hmm. where you can hang on to certain parts of their legacy, but it's still pretty complex. What, what a person carries with them and ultimately goes away when they go away, including the stuff they had. So people face the situation as who wants grandpa's stuff. I remember my mom offering us a chair that he sat in and some of it, you kind of want the nostalgia or memento, but most of it, you're like, that chair's never going to fit in my house. Mm. I don't want to restuff that chair. And yet probably the last 40 years of his life, he sat in that <laughs> chair. Yeah. It gives an opportunity for collective mourning, which is something that we needed to do because we were in a time of great death. And it seemed like a beautiful, appropriate, artistic response. Again, what can I contribute through my skills? The skills that I've, <laughs> in my 40, I was joking with a friend of mine, I'm 42. I've been directing since 08, and I've been performing in front of audiences since I was seven years old. I think it's fair to say that at this time, my career is a choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. It's so it's like... Let me ask you about another choice. When you collaborated with the Classic Theater of Harlem... Oh, yay! I want to know, there were like 55 events where you had this Amal. puppet little called Little Amal, right? But Little Amal wasn't no. little at all. How big is Little Amal? Oh, I don't know the exact height, but she's up there. But is it like a 30 or 40 foot puppet or something? She's big. I I've seen her in person. She's a biggie. So the pictures I saw, she was parading through Bryant Park yes. in Manhattan there. And I think the project was titled, When the World Sounds Like a Prayer. 
Yes. So tell me exactly what the installation was or the activity that went around that. And then ultimately she could, she could go to a lot of different places. So what was that? What kind of impact did that leave? Yeah, she's coming back to America actually this fall to other cities. New York was the first time she was in America because she, I don't know if she started in Europe or the area we refer to as the Middle East. I know she's been all through both of those areas and it's about refuge, it's about calling attention to refugees, especially children who are refugees. And so Amal walks to draw attention. And so you remember, you remember that these are people, these are children. Um, she becomes a symbol for that, for love, for acceptance, for empathy. When I learned that Amal was coming to uh, America and specifically New York, I got in touch with St. Anne's Warehouse. They were the, the company that was working directly with the little Amal folks. It kind of became like, okay, so what theater company in New York would you be interested in working with? And I selected the Classical Theater of Harlem. I had never worked with them before, but I had always wanted to work with them. They're one of my favorite theater companies in the country, if not the world. And they have been for a long time. How it ended up became a conversation with Classical Theater of Harlem once they signed on that this was something that they wanted to do and that they had, you know, the ability to do it. It, it wasn't a small event. <laughs> um, so basically it was like, okay, what does Amal, Amal represent so much to so many people. And she's already been to so many cities across the world. She's going to be all over the boroughs once she comes to New York as a, Classical Theater of Harlem, me working with them, how can Classical Theater of Harlem best bring what they have to offer to Amal's experience? And so for Classical Theater of Harlem, they were working on like the Harlem Renaissance at the time. They were doing projects about the Harlem Renaissance. And so both Ty Jones, who's the artistic director of the Classical Theater of Harlem and myself are huge fans of uh, James Weldon Johnson's God's Trombones. So book of poems that he wrote in the late 1920s, I believe 1927, and he wrote in poetic verse. So not language, because remember in the early 20th century, going back to the 1800s, a lot of work about African-Americans were written in what we call a dialect, which is broken language to sound close to how black people were believed to speak. And it was used both ways. It was used by white people in minstrel shows, but it was also used by people like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and Sterling Brown with his poetry because they wanted to create poetry that was really close to what they heard. James Weldon Johnson, not unlike myself, goes in a completely different direction. And he's like, I'm going to write it in poetic verse. So he writes it closer, not exactly like, but closer to, let's say, the King James Bible. It's seven classic, what he called Negro, because that was the word for Black at the time, the accepted word, seven Negro sermons in verse. So it's, I may forget them, there's a prayer at the beginning, the creation, Moses and the Exodus, Noah and the ark, the prodigal son, the crucifixion, and the last days. And those are the seven poems. Why? James Weldon Johnson writes it in the beginning. He wanted to crystallize the kind of preaching he heard at the beginning of the 20th century from the African-American preachers in the South who were still closer to the era of slavery than the era of industrialization that we were moving into at the beginning of the 20th century. He writes these seven poems and they're often performed as a play. I've been in it, I've seen it performed. So he's like, okay, we're doing the Harlem Renaissance. What about James Weldon Johnson's God's Trombones? I'm like, yes! <laughs> we do the creation, which is a beautiful, 
beautiful poem taken from, you know, the Genesis story, but put in an African-American context. And so this becomes a way of welcoming little Imal as we talk about African-American tradition of how the world was created. It is specifically African-American. How little Lamar's energy as a child, you know, this new beautiful creation is being brought into this space. And then the poem became a, a conversation of invitation from Ty, who is the African-American gentleman that you see in those images. That's Ty Jones, the artistic director of Plastic Theater, literally welcoming them all. And once them all is welcomed, remember Black Butterfly and Dance? I can't get away from dance and music spectacle. A dance group based in New York came and did a welcome dance around Little Lamal. We had a drummer, Don, I forget his last name, but he's one of the last poets. He was one of the last poets and he was their drummer and he was the lead drummer for our event. So you have a little bit of dance, a little bit of spectacle. And then the community of us begin to encircle Lamal and welcome her. Yeah. So that's what classical theater of Harlem, that's how we could welcome Little Lamal. When I tell you, Pat, that it was one of the most, without being hyperbolic, it was one of the most moving, most meaningful moments of my career and my life. Because I was one of the producers, I helped put that together. I helped bring these two worlds together and it was totally in line with who I wanna be as an artist. Because I don't believe that because I'm a theater director, my work should be limited to work that happens on the stage. As an artist, we have a right to respond. I think I'm paraphrasing Nina Simone. We have a right to respond to the world as it's happening right now in any variety of ways to do it. It's one of the reasons why puppetry in line with directing is so important to me. It allows another avenue for storytelling, for creating access to people, to bringing folks in and maybe helping to have a little bit of nonverbal visual conversation about how we can leave this space walking closer together. Pat, when a bunch of New Yorkers were surrounding Little Lamal, it was like the end of, you ever see the movie Elf with Will Ferrell? It felt like the end of Elf where you were just surrounded by people who were just giving themselves over to everything positive about what it means to be humans. And it's like, good, now remember that when you get home, remember that next week, remember this energy. The next time you're in a situation where you might be able to welcome someone who's coming from somewhere else and the only thing that they really need from you is a hug and a, you holding their hand and here's a little something to eat and you can dance if you wanna. I wanna give you a chance as a director to share anything that might inspire or be insightful to somebody new in the arts that uh, would allow them to do just what you're talking about, which is to figure out how to pursue their passion in the most elegant way they can. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that invitation. The best quote that I've ever read in my life was that my dad used to subscribe to Reader's Digest in the 90s. <laughs> And there was a book of quotes, it's the best quote I've ever heard, and I've really built my life around it. And it said, figure out what you like to do and then find someone who will pay you to do that. <laughs> so really, it's like, think about what you would like to do. Think about what interests you. I spoke about my professor, Jessica Thebus, in, in grad school, she would always say, always follow the heat. 
your interest will always lead you to something that will interest you. And then you can build on that. Think about, meditate on what you like. What do you enjoy doing? And here's a clue. You've already surrounded yourself with it. Because whether we know it or not, we surround ourselves with things that we want to be around. And we distance ourselves from things that we don't want to be around. It's one of the gifts of growing old when you realize that you've been surrounding yourself with this thing, but it's not bringing you joy. And you get to the point where you're like, well, I'm no longer going to surround myself with that thing. Isn't that, doesn't that make life easier? So really think about what you enjoy doing and then learn everything you can about it. If you're into theater puppetry, storytelling, there is a wealth of information. Now, I'm a nerd, so I read books. I love reading books. I'm reading two books right now. One's a book on puppetry. The other's a book on American musical theater. <laughs> All right. I salute your nerdness and your, and your puppetry and your directing. And if people want to know more or found out more about you, I'll give them a website and then your Instagram. So jarell-henderson.com. We'll get you to a plethora of very interesting backstory and a scrapbook of things you've done in the past. But to pay attention to what you're doing in the present and moving forward, they go to Instagram at black underscore theater underscore vinyl underscore archive, and they can find out what you're doing and follow you. And I wish you continued success as you move forward. Conversations like these mean the world to me. And so I just want you to know I'm not blowing smoke. I am genuinely grateful that you invited me into this space to share a little bit about my story. It's great. And we will, you will be in our listening library for years to come. So Yay. again, I appreciate you participating. Yeah, this is my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.